Well, so we've been in this uh, study of Genesis chapter 3, looking at the fall of man. And of course, we spent quite a bit of time in the first half of Genesis chapter 3, which really focuses in on uh, the actual fall, the temptation and fall. That whole episode where uh, the serpent, Satan in the form of a serpent, approaches Eve first and and engages her in a, in a conversation that ultimately leads to a, a, a massive transfer of trust from, from God and his word to Satan, the serpent and his word. This uh, calculation that something must be missing or there's something to be gained by going in a different direction and really really a shift of worldview. And, uh, and, and that thus leads to the giving of the fruit to Adam as well and he partakes and the subsequent fall. And we, we pick ourselves up today with uh, the curses, the, the, the beginning of the curses, as God begins to um, level out those, those um, ultimate consequences. Of course, you have that confrontation that takes place before this, where man's, uh, man's nature after sin is sort of starts to be exposed, where he's oriented toward hiding and toward rationalizing and justifying sin, um, does not want to, to have accountability, does not want to uh, confront the issues head on, um, but often looks to hide, looks to hide from God, looks to avoid all manner of accountability. And yet we see God faithfully pursuing uh, confession and repentance in that whole scene. So over and over again, as we look at the first few chapters of Genesis, we, we ultimately come back to this great and powerful and sovereign, just, law-giving, but incredibly gracious, incredibly patient God that has redeemed us and called us to himself, and we are obviously beneficiaries of his great patience as well and his great grace. So we're going to see more of that again today to, to no surprise as we look, start to look at the, um, the curses. I had, I had anticipated trying to get through this all today, but um, I, I don't feel like that's uh, the right way to handle this section. Um, I don't think it would uh, really cover things well, and I just think that it's important, especially when we get to verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3, and we really expand out the implications of the curse uh, as a theological matter, as a doctrinal matter, and the plan of redemption of God, and really looking at it from also from a New Testament perspective, a New Covenant perspective. I think we need to spend some time there to really, to really handle that, that section correctly. But uh, today, obviously, we're going to start in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3 and begin to look at um, the curse as it unfolds there. So let's read along together, starting in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we have this, this uh, downward spiral in the narrative of, of curse where God um, renders out uh, his judgment, his consequence for the unfaithfulness and the disobedience that uh, took place there in the garden. And of course, the, the text uh, starts at the place where sin, the, the, the process of sin and temptation begins. The, the flow of the narrative takes us back to the, really the sin of the serpent. Uh, the sin of Satan himself was obviously manifest even before the narrative picks up here, as we know that Satan fell from heaven because of his rebellion against God and took a third of the angels with him. We see that in Ezekiel and Revelation, a few other places allude to it. So we have this sin of, of, of uh, the serpent that actually is before even this conversation with Eve takes place, but nevertheless, this begins to manifest that effect uh, on planet Earth with uh, God's special creation uh, of, of Eve and Adam. And so that's where the curse begins. It begins with the serpent. So the first thing we see here in verses 14 and 15 is that God makes the animal itself, the, the, the physiological being itself, a permanent symbol of the fall and the curse. He, he makes the animal a permanent symbol. So there is a physical uh, effect that takes place on this particular created being, this serpent. Obviously, this is not something that has to do with the, um, the self-conscious awareness of the animal kingdom at that point in time. It wasn't as though snakes were like humans and you know, could reflect on their own actions and their own reasoning processes and all that. But this is really an indication of how this, this being that was really just a vessel of the ancient serpent, the serpent of old, as it refers to in Revelation chapter 12, that God uses this to, 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 to create a symbol or a reminder, a permanent reminder of, of this fall and this curse. Henry Morris, uh, in his book, uh, The Genesis Record, says this, The serpent, as an animal, was cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, not because of direct culpability on its part, but rather as a perpetual reminder to man of the instrument of his fall, and of the final destruction of Satan himself. Whatever may have been its beauty and posture before, it would henceforth glide on its belly and be an object of dread and loathing by all. So you have this this physical thing that happens with this being. We don't know what the serpent was created to look like before this. Uh, It's Apparently it it was an upright being of some kind. Um, Really that's not the point of the passage. A lot of people go to this text and they try to bring it into, you know, sort of physiological um, uh, um, life science kinds of discussions, you know, and that's really not the point of the passage, but clearly um, there was something distinct about this new manner of locomotion for the snake, for the serpent, that was intended to be a sign and a symbol. Um, it really is, if you think about it, it's a, it's a form of, of humiliation, it's a sign of humiliation, um, having to crawl on the ground, and eating the dust of the earth, really not literally 
dust becoming the food of this animal, this source of sustenance, but really another symbol or a, a, a metaphor for utter humiliation, that, that your life will exist at the lowest point of the earth, and that's how your entire existence will perpetuate. And, and the way that you uh, even sustain your life is going to come as close to the earth and, and the dust of the ground as you can possibly get. So, so that was kind of the way that the, the curse unfolds initially. And really, you have this broken into two, um, two components here from verse 14 to verse 15. Because when you get to verse 15, you really see the emphasis uh, focusing in on that ancient serpent, as Revelation 12 says, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's from Revelation 12, 9. And, and this is where God predicts his plan of redemption and proclaims Satan's ultimate defeat in this section. Verse 15 is a, a, a loaded verse. It's loaded with doctrinal and theological significance, implication, inference, um, Martin Luther says it this way, this text, verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. That's Martin Luther's commentary on this one verse. So I want you guys to think about this one verse with me. Somebody read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 aloud. Who wants to take that? And, and let's, let's discuss this for a minute. Who has it handy? So let's think about this passage for a second. Now, this obviously does not explain everything doctrinally in the scriptures. It doesn't give you know significant historical context for all the great doctrines that unfold in scripture. But just just by some close observation, let's let's try to identify some of the sweeping doctrines that you find uh, revealed throughout scripture that are referenced or alluded to or sort of implied in this one verse? Who can give me some, some thoughts on that? And when I say doctrines, I mean like, you know, you could think of salvation by grace or you could think of, you know, that's what I mean by, by sweeping doctrinal truths. Yeah, so you have, I mean, even with just what she just said, you have, you could, you have, I'm not saying it's a direct, you know, quote or, or verse that completely explains this, but you have a, an allusion to substitutionary atonement, you have an allusion to the virgin birth, you have uh, an allusion to, or a reference really to um, eschatology and end times, the final, ultimate, consummate defeat of Satan, of the enemy. So just in that one little commentary, you have all of that kind of wrapped up in it. What, what else do you see here? Okay, so let's, let's tease that out a little bit. 
Well, I, I, I can answer what I believe it's referring to, and I'm happy to do that, but that's, that's too easy. This is, that's one. Yeah. So you have spiritual warfare as sort of a, a matter of doctrine or sweeping sort of biblical instruction here. I mean, the offspring of Satan is... Um, in the spiritual sense, it's the demonic host that are his... his I think it's... Yes. Yes. So let's, 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 this is a good... This can become somewhat confusing or, or can get muddled in our thinking if we're not careful. It's a pretty sweeping reference, okay? And, and it... it they, they weave in and out, right? I mean, we know, for example, that we are not just physical beings, right? So when you think about the nature of this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take into account the spiritual and the physical um, as, as it relates to the offspring uh, component here. So um, turn to Matthew chapter 13, and we'll, we'll kind of tease this out a little bit. Yeah, right. It's seed is a better translation. Although, um, I don't. I read. I read. There, there's. You know. You start reading on this, and it's amazing how how many gnats get strained in theological discussion about what one word in the Hebrew can mean. Um, but yes, yeah, seed is definitely a good translation of that. Um, but in in Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, you have Jesus. He's teaching by way of parable, and, and starting in verse twenty four, he. Um, he teaches uh, the parable of the weeds. And in verse 24, starting in verse 24, he says this. He put an, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Now skip down to verse 36, and you have the explanation of the parable. In verse 36 it says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, the offspring of the evil one, the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you have this vivid image of the time before the consummation of all things under the kingdom of Christ, right? Before, before the eradication of 
all sin, all weeping, all suffering, and, and the complete, utter recreation of the world and, and making everything right. Before that, you have weeds growing up in the same field as good seed. And so in this, you have offspring, essentially. You have the offspring of God as adopted children, if you want to kind of continue with that, that metaphor, that ideology, and the offspring of Satan. In John eight forty four, you have this, uh, what, what does Jesus uh, consider, uh, he, he kind of really, in, in a strong accusation to the Pharisees at that time, what does he, what does he refer to them as? Yeah, he, he basically ascribes to them a sonship, their father the devil, and the reference to that he's the father of lies, he's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So, so this idea of offspring, in one sense, is a reference to the offspring of God being the, the redeemed righteous, those are, who are God's people, um, and the offspring of Satan, who are those who are uh, the unrighteous, the unredeemed, who are at odds with the, the, all things related to the kingdom of God. And so you have this, this, uh, this illusion here um, of, of what the world is going to be like with this enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So again, uh, major references here to sweeping doctrinal truth. I mean, in this, that one little verse, again, this reference to this whole idea of spiritual warfare. We also know that, for example, um, from 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, somebody look up 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, and let's just kind of touch on that to make sure that we're not, um, we're not focusing in on the physical descendants, if you will, of God, the offspring of woman, and being the the righteous, and the offspring of Satan being the unrighteous. But let's think about this in the context of true spiritual warfare. Um, Do you have uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5? Would you read that? So this is the Apostle Paul identifying the, the um, really locating the battlefield, if you will, and, and really identifying the nature of the battle. And really, the battle, the spiritual war that we are engaged in is a war not against physical people. The enemies of the people of God are not the, the people who are unredeemed. Who are the people who are unredeemed as it relates to the people of God? But what, but what are they to us until Christ comes? Oh, enemies. Well, but they're the mission field. But they're the mission field too, right? I mean, the, 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 so in other words, we can't, I want to be careful that we don't, that I, you don't hear me saying, uh, setting up some kind of, um, uh, you know, the good guys and the bad guys so that we start to think that people who are not saved are our enemies. That's not what I'm trying to say. They, that's right. They are the enemies of God and us in our un, unredeemed, unsaved state we are at enmity with God. We are haters of God. We are, I mean, that's, that's, how we are, that's how Scripture identifies us outside of Christ, before we came to Christ. So anyone who is not in Christ, anyone who is unredeemed, is that before God. But from the vantage point of us as believers, those are people who we are to reach out to, to love with compassion, to, to share the gospel with, and really to do what Christ did when he was on earth, right? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So again, I don't want to set this up as some kind of 
us-against-them kind of mindset. But in the context of doctrinal truth, you do have the, the offspring of woman, as it's referred to here, that will be at enmity with the offspring of Satan. And part of that has to do with the angelic spiritual world. Part of it has to do with the, those who are fleshing out the, the truths and principles and making those arguments for God and his word and his truth or for every lofty opinion that sets itself against the kingdom of God, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Right. Correct. So, again, spiritual warfare. Uh, we've talked about substitutionary atonement as this reference to um, the, the bruised head and the, and the bruised heel. Um, so that, that's, that's a, we know this from our vantage point, from a New Testament, New Covenant uh, vantage point, that that's a, a foretelling or a, a, it's called the Proto-Evangelion. Have you heard that term before? The first, the first good news, the first gospel. Theologians kind of have identified this passage as sort of the first sort of gospel proclamation, if you will, um, a, a forecasting of, of the redemptive plan of God through Christ, uh, and this reference to the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent, if you will. So um, it also could be a reference to, uh, think about it this way, um, it could be, though I wouldn't say that this is, this is, a, um, this is a clear and arguable, that's exactly what is meant here. By implication, it's, it's, you, can, you can draw this out as, a, as an inference uh, to the virgin birth because um, the seed of the woman is a, the, the, the seed comes from the man, and so the seed of the woman that ultimately crushes the head of the serpent will be Christ who was born of a virgin, right? So... There's some implication there that you can, you can take from it, but certainly it's a reference to the, the coming of, of Christ and his work to both atone for sin, uh, conquer sin, and, um, and ultimately be the one who defeats Satan and all his, all his efforts to overtake the kingdom of God. If you think about this for a second, sometimes it's, I don't know if you, if you guys um, go down this path, but... Do you ever stop to think, when you think about this whole affair here in the Garden of Eden, or the, the beginnings of sin, or the fall, or, or just the work of Satan and, and all that, uh, do you ever stop to think, like, like what's wrong with this, this entity? I mean, does he not get it? I mean, you, you're done. I mean, did you not see this? Did you not hear this? What, what, what do you think is a reason why... Um, Satan is so persistent in his efforts to defeat the kingdom of God when it's already been established it's never going to happen. Is it because he wants that many more in his kingdom? Um, I'm sure that's a, a motivating factor. But I'm, I'm actually wondering, I'm actually, again, this is a little bit speculative on my part, but I think it's, it's not a, it's not a, a reach. Think about the nature of self-deception. When someone, just when a, when a person, a human being, becomes really self-deceived, they, they, they're just, in other words, they're, they're believing and then 
retelling themselves things that aren't true about their life or about their relationships or about other people in their lives. And so we, we, can, we can get into a spiral of complete self-deception where we're, sending, we're, ta- we're talking to ourselves in lies, untruth, and become completely deluded to what's really true. Well, think about the, self, the, 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 the extent of self-deception that is probably in play in the mind of Satan. I mean, it began with this fall from heaven and taking a third of the angels with him. So, again, everything you, everything you have reference to Satan is, is all about being a, an accuser, being um, full of pride, being a liar. When he lies, he speaks his native language. So you have this being that is on a perpetual quest to overtake God. Yeah. Isn't it such that Satan really never believed God? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's a thing. When you start th- thinking about, and again, this is, <laughs> I don't want to go too far with this because it'll be just complete, you know, just kind of guesswork. But if you just take the principle of self-deception and you, you apply it to the, the ultimate, consummate king deceiver himself and his own self-deception, you can kind of start to think, well, there you go. I mean, even, even, even after the, the actual death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Christ, there's still deception there in place. So anyway, just something to, to, to think about and keep in mind and as you think about this, this adversary, this enemy. So again, sweeping, sweeping doctrinal um, truths here. What about, what about the doctrine of sovereign election? Think about this. Uh, would it not be safe to assume that Satan had a sense that he'd kind of you know, won this major, major coup in causing Adam and Eve, these beings created in the very image of God, given these, this garden and given this commission to tend the garden and to have dominion and to multiply and be fruitful and to have and to be image bearers of God, representatives of God on planet Earth. Don't you think that there was, in, in his pride, in his, in his self-delusion and self-deception, don't you think that he probably felt like he had won the day in this fall? Isn't there a similarity between this and his argument with God relative to Job? Yes, yes, it's very similar. In fact, that's probably the most vivid example of, of what that probably looks like, um, representative of his way of thinking, if you will. And how he thought he could get away with just about anything. Right, right. So here you have, though, God saying, no, no. That's not how this is going to go down. In fact, John MacArthur makes an argument that he believes that this is, this is, the, this is the, the, the redemption of Eve is in play here. The actual salvation of Eve is in play here in terms of the, the sovereign elective purposes of God uh, being played out here. Um, I'm not going to try to develop that because I just read it and, and you know, don't know if I 
how I feel about it, but, but nonetheless, you do see God saying, I have a redemptive plan. I have offspring that I will redeem. I, I, have, I have people that I will adopt into my family. This is not over. I am sovereign. You have God's sovereign election, his sovereign grace, that even in spite of this massive rebellion against his good and perfect purposes and plan, that he still is, is, has a plan of, of extending grace, that, that it's so much a part of the very character and nature of God that even while he is leveling out a curse and a consequence for utter and complete rebellion in the face of complete and total gracious, abundant provision, that he's, he's in the midst of this curse, he's also extending and demonstrating not just grace in the moment, but his plan for grace through the ages. It's just an amazing testimony of the, of the eternal sovereign grace of God that we see referred to here in this passage. So when you start to kind of think about this verse, you can kind of start to think like what Martin Luther was thinking. It's like this verse is packed with grand truths from Scripture and the purposes of God and the character of God and the and the nature of life on planet Earth in a, in a war field, in a war zone, and spiritual battle, and, 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 and how God is going to bring about redemption through His Son, and, and, and what the consummation of the age is going to look like as it relates to this, this enemy of God, an enemy of God's people, the serpent, that His end is sealed, His fate is sealed. All that kind of wrapped up in this, this verse. A lot here. Um, <clears throat> Well, we could talk more about that, but let's, let's jump now. I want to talk uh, for the rest of our time about the curse of the woman. And really, um, um, I, I have a section from a sermon that, that speaks to this that I thought was just really, uh, really kind of expanded um, really the nature of this, this curse on the woman in a way that I think is, is particularly helpful and insightful. But, but in, in plain terms, you have this pain in childbearing as part of the curse. You have this struggle for control, particularly in the con- context of marriage. And you have this promise of being subjugated by husbands in the context of marriage. Wicked, sinful husbands. So that's the promise. It's a great, great life for the woman, right? Things are looking good. Pain in childbearing... A struggle for control in marriage. Now, just to, to, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, but just so you understand from the text um, what we're talking about there. If you look at verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That term, desire, your desire shall be for your husband, is the same term that's used in Genesis chapter 4, where um, in, in the story of Cain and Abel, and this, the text says that, um, that to Cain, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It's a, it's a, it's a, the idea, it carries the idea of control, or it wants to overtake you. It wants to rule you. So the idea here is that and if you, if you look back to Genesis chapter 2, you have this beautiful picture of, of complete complementary uh, husband and wife relationship. Um, this suitable helper that's brought to, to the man, and the man says, 
This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. So you have this beautiful picture of harmonious um, understanding and complementary relationship and fellowship in the context of marriage. And this goes right at that on both sides, on both counts. Um, You've got the the woman wanting control, and you've got the man ruling over the woman in sinful and wicked ways. Okay? So let's kind of explode that out a little bit. And I just want to read from this this excerpt from a sermon. It's, It's somewhat lengthy, so just kind of stay with me. In general, women are the slaves of men. Men who, in general, have little interest in their personal needs, very little interest in their feelings, their emotions, their sufferings. In general, men have throughout human history used women for sexual fulfillment, for domestic duties, to tend to the children. All over the world, women have been subjugated and humiliated. And until modern times, men actually held the power of life and death over women and still do in some tribal regions. This harsh treatment of women, which is pretty much the general pattern of human history, was not the original design of God. Sin brought it in, and it therefore corrupted the original relationship between man and woman, between woman and her children, and made life very difficult. And while there is general suffering in the world that everybody goes through because of death, because of disease, because of disasters, we all have a measure of suffering because of sin. Sin has brought about death and decay and decline and disintegration, and we all understand that. We all live with accidents and illnesses and disasters of one kind or another. There are those, just those general matters in a fallen world that expose us all to harm and ultimately to death. But in a very specific way, women have a general category of suffering, and primarily their suffering is related to two things. It's related to their children and their husbands. Apart from the general sufferings that all of us go through, which I just mentioned, there's a particular area of suffering that belongs only to women, and that is the perennial bearing and caring of children and the perennial dealing with husbands. It is a hard, it is a hard and has been a hard and relentless and awful, often sorrowful duty through most of history and even today. It isn't that women can't find some measure of joy in their children. They can It isn't that they don't find some measure of joy in their husbands if they are reasonably kind and thoughtful to them. They can. But the fact of the matter is, is it is is the unique burden for women to bear, to have to deal with children with pregnancy, to have to deal with husbands who do not understand them nor care for them compassionately and with understanding. In most societies throughout human history, they have been treated uh, as second-class, if even fifth-class citizens. They have, in most cultures, belonged to men for their own usage. For whatever the men commanded and whatever the men desired, the men have dominated them. And they can do that because by sheer force of human strength, they have the power to exercise over women. They have obviously, of course, impregnated women, and therefore they have exposed women constantly to death. Throughout most of human history, childbearing took a woman to the brink of death. Even so today in third world countries, women go into pregnancy realizing they could die to say nothing of losing the child they've carried in their womb for nine months. Mortality rates are still high in many places, and through human history, more babies have perished in birth than have lived. There are then great difficulties and dangers that are associated with being a woman. To say nothing of carrying around a child for nine months in your womb and then having to release that child into the world with all of its hostilities and all of its threats 
and all of its dangers, whether they be physical dangers or whether they be moral dangers, the child now finding its independence and because the child by nature is a sinner, wicked, that child is going to find everything destructive to entertain itself and therefore a mother has a heart that never rests. She worries, about not only, she worries not only about what may harm the child physically, but what may destroy the child's soul. There are not only accidents and plagues and injuries that can worry the mother. There is the rebellion that will break her heart. There is that child that moves away into a kind of life that grieves a mother. And the more children she has, the worse it is. And throughout most of human history, she has, she has had, she's had as many children as she can conceive that were actually born there were no contraceptions as there are in modern times. And so women were sentenced to submit to their husbands at their sexual whims and then to bear the children that were born and then to spend their whole lives caring, bearing, nursing, and nurturing and then carrying the load of love that watched those children fall into danger after danger and even break their own mother's hearts. That puts a pretty vivid picture in front of us, doesn't it? Now, an interesting... Um, Note here, to just illustrate in a much milder way than this, uh, an element of this, I didn't ask Alicia if I could do this, but I think she'll be okay, I hope. Even this morning, even this morning, uh, when we're getting ready to come here, without any context, without any prior conversation that's been recent that would lead to this, my wife, Alicia, out of the blue, asked this question. Do we still intend, if something were to happen to us, intend for our children to go to such and such family members? We had previously done a will, you know, a living will and all that, and we had kind of assigned, you know, if something were to happen to us, what would happen to our children and all that. And so out of the blue, she's in her mind, she's thinking about if something were to happen to us, do we still, is this still the right course for us? We haven't talked about that, or, or it hasn't, I can't tell you how long. And yet that kind of gives you the picture of the, of the woman's, part of the woman's burden that she bears, that she carries here, that is, that is uniquely part of, of the curse, because she knows that something could happen to us, that we live in a fallen world, and that there is death and disease, and there is accidents, and there is things that could befall us that would have an effect not only on us, but have an effect on our children. So sometimes when you read these, these very limited verses in Genesis chapter 3 as it, as it details the nature of the curse, it's almost easy to kind of whip past it and not even really think about the broader, more significant, more weighty implications of what the fall means and what the implications of the curse are for our our existence and our experience on this planet. But the woman bears a unique and significant and heavy, weighty burden, particularly as it relates to the family. And yet, thankfully, by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God, those relationships can be redeemed. And that's why when you go to New Testament passages on marriage, there is not just this how do you have a happy marriage together kind of teaching. It's how do you demonstrate the redemptive purposes and plan of God as a testimony and a witness in your marriage and in that marriage relationship, particularly Ephesians talks about that. So praise God for 
Christians who are pursuing redeeming characteristics of marriage and particularly husbands who are redeeming their association and interaction and care and concern for their wives and not lording and ruling over them and and redeeming that complementary relationship that was the intent and the ideal set out uh, in the garden. Well, we'll conclude with that. Uh, We'll start next week with uh, Adam and the implications of that for all humanity um, as we look at some New Testament passages related to that as well. Let's pray.